beautiful day. Good morning, 12. If you're a visitor, we're, we welcome you. We're glad to have you this morning. Um, I'd like you to turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 8, if you would. The Gospel of John, chapter 8, the New Testament. Um, as you turn there, a couple things. Appreciate, I'm not sure if Jason is here this morning. Appreciate, um, this light is really bright in my eyes. Could we... Thank you. Um, well, not makes it probably so dark now. Nobody can see me. <laughs> Thank you. For Jason Hubner and David for, for preaching while we were gone at the, the conference, I, um, I appreciate that. And just really want to encourage you, next week we are going to have a baptism. Seven people are being baptized. We'll have some in each service, so be here. That's an important part of the family, and we're going to be doing that up here in our, uh, uh, in our horse, not our trough, but you know. Uh, like we normally do. I mean, it's Kansas. That's what you, that's how you baptize people, right? Um, and, you know, the, let me pull this up. You're like, oh no, are we doing that some more? Um, there, well, I've heard there's three things that are eternal, God, his word, souls, and then the identity series would be a fourth. Um, now, while I was doing that, I had coffee conversations with several people and who had questions or issues they were struggling with. And I thought, you know, I'm going to come back to a couple of things that I think are really significant. So I'm going to hit one um, of those this morning. And in a, a couple of weeks, I'm going to hit another one of those. But I'd like to read in the Gospel of John. Would you stand with me? Um, the Gospel of John, chapter 8. And I'm going to start in, I'm going to actually start in verse 2. It's how it is in my Bible. It says, at dawn he appeared again, this is Jesus, appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery, and they made her stand before the group. And they said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Now, what do you say? Let me interject one thing. In the law, um, it was very clear that if, if somebody, if if a couple were caught in adultery, you would bring both the man and the woman. So they have no interest in justice because they only bring the woman. Uh, they don't bring the man. So verse 6, they were using, and we can see, they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. And this is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let me just ask you a quick question. Um, if you were that woman, what emotions would you feel? being drug in in the temple in front of all those people by yourself and your sin caught in the act and your sin told everybody. What, what would some of the emotions be that you would feel? Shame? Humiliation? Fear? Yeah, they're talking about stoning her. Regret? Yeah, there'd be some anger in there. Yeah. Condemnation, I think. Don't you think a very strong sense of condemnation? Do you ever feel like that woman? I've talked to a few people who feel like that woman. Um, who are convinced that God's bent towards them is disappointment. Because they don't do the things or follow him in the way they think they should who live in a lot of shame and guilt in their relationship with God, who uh, in relation to the series are like, okay, I've heard what you said. I've heard the scripture about God, me being the beloved child of God and him delighting in me. 
Um, I think that's true for most people, but it's not true for me. Because I know my past, and I know how I'm currently living, and that really doesn't apply. And so I know there are people here this morning um, who are living under the bondage of guilt and shame, who are sinking under the weight of a spirit of condemnation. And so I want to talk about a spirit of condemnation because I am, am convinced that one of the things, one of the main things that makes us live as an orphan instead of as a child of God is this, this idea, this concept of living with a spirit of condemnation. I think we all wrestle with it from time to time, uh, but I want you to know there is somebody, uh, Scott was just, you even kind of referenced this, somebody there who wants to keep me in a sense of condemnation and who wants to speak that into my heart who wants to agree with me when I feel that way, who does not want me to anchor my identity in Jesus, and that is Satan. Um, you don't have to turn there. I just want you to listen. In the first chapter of the Old Testament book of Job, it tells us about a man named Job, someone who, verse 1, tells us was blameless and upright, who feared God and who shunned evil. And in verse 6, we read this of that first chapter. It says, One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. And the Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? And Satan answered the Lord from roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. And then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Satan says, does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? Have you not blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land? Now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and most surely he will curse you to your face. He'll curse you to your face. See what's going on here? Satan standing before God, throwing shade on Job, standing as his accuser. And I want you to know that is who he is and that is what he does. Um, we've talked before, I just mentioned it a few weeks ago, that in the, in the biblical times, a person's name described the essence of who they were. And that name Satan, literally, uh, in Hebrew, Satan, means the accuser. And I want to show you a couple of texts that speak to this, this task of him being the accuser. Um, in Zechariah chapter 3, verses 1 to 2, it says, Then it says, The angel showed me Joshua the high priest, and standing at his right side to, to what? To accuse him. Standing at the right side, Satan, to accuse him. And then Revelation 12, 9 to 11, the great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan. He is the what? He's the accuser of our brothers and sisters. Who, who what? Who accuses them before our God day and night. The accuser who accuses us day and night. Um, it's as if with Satan that we're living in this courtroom of life and he stands constantly as the prosecuting attorney pleading a case against us, day and night. Um, N.T. Wright has called Satan the celestial director of persecutions. William Barclay, the accuser par excellence. H.B. Sweet calls him the cynical libeler of all that God has made. And Ernest Renan, the malevolent critic of creation. John Bunyan says, Satan is an our night and day adversary who does not forbear to tell our bad deeds to our Father, urging that we might forever be disinherited. I mean, you know what it's like, right? He acts, as, he acts as the prosecuting attorney. He acts as the judge, the jury, the executioner. All of those things. And he always gives the same verdict every single time, right? Guilty. Condemned. 
His is the voice that's always accusing, right? Who says of you, you're a fake, you're an imposter. If people only really knew who you were. And he labels us all the time. Remember we talked about how people label, put value on you with those, the, the, the guns I was talking about, how I used to in Radio Shack label things, prices. He labels us all the time, incompetent and incapable, insignificant, unimportant, worthless, an outright failure, and therefore hopeless. He'll put on us the label unforgivable, irredeemable, unlovable, and unacceptable. Ever had any of those messages come into your mind? And in our fallenness, sadly, I think we take the bait. We see our past and present failings, and we take our eyes off our identity in Jesus. That's what that image is on this card. We, we look in the mirror, and we see some of these failings, and he, he condemns us, and it takes our eyes off of Jesus and our identity in him. And we take our seat on the jury, and we listen to his, acts, his accusations against us, right? And we nod in agreement. Um, your inner critic kicks in. For some of us, we have a whole panel of inner critics. We've got like 20 that are inside of us criticizing. Um, someone has even said, my inner critics have critics. <laughs> That's pretty funny. And sadly, we buy into the lies, and we beat ourselves up, and we judge ourselves. We stand in judgment, and we condemn ourselves, and we live under this suffocating weight of sin and shame. Um, we stand condemned because of our present lives, because of struggles we have, of strongholds in our lives. We stand condemned because of our past, and we live full of regret. And the result is, the result of all of that is we feel unworthy and disqualified, and so we shrink back from God, and we start living as an orphan, just living in that cycle. And then we keep coming back to the things we've done. He keeps bringing us back to that. We keep cycling back to that, and we just stay living in that place as if we don't really have a loving Father who loves us and has unconditionally accepted us. And we end up losing all God-confidence and all self-confidence when we get stuck there. But I want you to know when we take that bait of Satan, that what he's telling us are lies, um, in John 8, Jesus said this, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native tongue. Is that not good? He speaks his native tongue, for he is a liar and he is the father of lies. I want you to know G Satan is the, the liar supreme. And I want you to also know, lies have great power, don't they? And I've said this in the first sermon I did, I quoted Craig Rochelle, who said, a lie believed as truth will affect you as truth. A lie believed as truth will affect you as truth. But what I just showed you, that, that's not how God intends us to live as an orphan down there. We're intended to live our identity as the beloved children of God, not living under a cloud of condemnation, but living under the umbrella of his love and grace. That's his intent for us. And so we've talked about Satan who stands as the prosecuting attorney. But then we see somebody taking a totally different posture standing at our side named Jesus. Um, on one side is Satan, our accuser. On the other side is Jesus Christ, our ever-living Savior, teacher, Lord, and friend. And he is so important because he stands doing two ministries for us. Number one, he stands as our ad intercessor. And two, he stands as our advocate. So I want to start with that in in intercessor one. An intercessor is one who stands between two parties and makes petitions and entreaties on behalf of one to the other. 
I want you to listen to me. We don't just have one intercessor. We have two intercessors. In Romans 8, 26, it says this in the same way. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And then a few verses later in verse 34, it says, Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. He's also interceding for us. I want to show you something really powerful um, in that last verse when it talks about Jesus as our intercessor. Do you remember? I mean, I just referenced it, read it to you. It was on the screen, Zechariah chapter 3. When it talked about um, the high priest and Joshua, do you remember where it said Satan was standing? Probably not because you weren't thinking about it, but does anybody remember where it said he was standing? At his right side, right, at his right hand. Satan had his ear all the time, right, like all of us. I think he stands at our side speaking. Where is Jesus standing? He's also at the right hand of somebody. The right hand of who? At the right hand of God, the Father. There he is, speaking to the Father, having the Father's ear, speaking truth of who we are, answering all those accusations that are thrown our way to the one who most matters. So in this regard, I want to show you something really significant. In Revelation 12, 9 to 11, it says this, the great dragon, we did this back in Christmas, the day after, was it Christmas Day or the day after? The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, the accuser of our brothers and sisters, who accuses them before our God day and night. He has been hurled down. I want you to know Satan has been cast out of heaven, and he no longer sits in the courtroom of God, and he does not have God's ear like he did in the Old Testament. Through the work of Jesus, he has been cast down. He doesn't have the Father's ear anymore. No more more hearing um, whenever he tries to talk, this is like the father's posture to him. You know, talk to the hand, right? I want you to know only Jesus has the father's ear now. Is there any better news than that? Any better news than that? Is there anybody you would most want to be speaking on your behalf to the father than Jesus Christ? Anybody? I can't think of anybody. And that's why that scripture ends by saying they triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb. So Jesus stands as our intercessor, but more importantly to me, he stands as our advocate. Let me define that word, if I may. An advocate is someone who supports and even promotes the interests of another, one who defends and pleads the case of another on their behalf and in their favor. An advocate, unlike an intercessor, doesn't simply stand between two parties, but an advocate steps over, he joins one party as he approaches the other, and he stands at the side, drawing near to them, standing for them, speaking up for them, expressing Um, a sense of solidarity. So an an intercessor stands between two parties. An advocate stands beside one of those parties. And in fact, the Greek word for advocate is parakletos, which literally means someone who is called alongside. And in a court of law, um, the advocate is the defense attorney who stands opposed to the prosecuting attorney. Somebody is there who is there to plead our case and speak on our behalf. And I really want you to leave this morning understanding that we all have an advocate before the Father. We have, so to speak, a defense attorney who stands beside us, who is so much greater than Satan, the prosecuting attorney. I want you to know we have an advocate, and that is Jesus. And I want to show you in 1 John 2, 1, John writes, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, by the way, anybody here ever sin? Can you raise your hand if you sin? Okay, 
I hope everybody raised their hand. If anybody does sin, we have an what? An advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. We have an advocate standing at our side. But there's even more. I love this. I love this. Jesus is not only our advocate. He sends the Holy Spirit to live within us, and he serves as our advocate also. It's from the Gospel of John. Four times Jesus speaks of the Holy Spirit as our advocate. In John 14, 16, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate. Why would he give him another? Who's the other advocate? Yeah, Jesus. Another advocate to help you and be with you forever. In John 14, 26, but the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I've said to you. In John 15, 26, when the advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father will testify about me. And then John 16, 7, but very truly I tell you, it is for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. Isn't that powerful? That we have an advocate not only beside us, but living inside of us. And here's what I love about those four passages. If you look closely, you see the whole Trinity involved in this advocating ministry. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. How many of you are fans of the TV show JAG? Pat used to watch it. Um, Any fans? Two fans of JAG. Three? Okay, a few fans of JAG. JAG stood for the Judge Advocate General's Corps. It was a corps composed of army officers who were lawyers who existed to plead the case of people in the army who found themselves in legal trouble and who met with them in their time of need. And here's what's so cool as as we look at those texts that we just read about the the Holy Spirit, is that in in the Trinity, in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we have an advocate's core. Is that not powerful? We have an advocate's core. And here's what all that means. Sarah read this, but it's worth reading again. Here's what all of that means. That in Romans 8, it says this, there is now no condemnation. Can you say that with me? No condemnation. Let's do it with a little more, a little more something, oomph. Ready? No condemnation. There is now no condemnation. No. For those who are in Christ Jesus, no condemnation. If you're in Jesus Christ, if you've accepted him as Lord and Savior, no condemnation. None. Thank you, Judy. To the truth, right? No condemnation. And any time Satan stands beside us as our accuser, here's what I want you to know, how the, how the father responds. He doesn't have his ear, but how the father responds to him. I want to go back to that Zechariah 3. The angel showed me Joshua, the high priest, and Satan standing in his right side to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, I, God, rebuke you, accuser. I rebuke you. Rather than listen to him, God rebukes him in all of his condemnation. And if that's true of an Old Testament saint, how much more is it true of somebody who knows God through Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior? How much more is that true? Dane Ortland, in his book, Gentle and Lowly, says, um, When we don't obey, when we choose sin, though we forsake our true identity, our Savior does not forsake us. These are the very moments when his heart erupts on our behalf in renewed advocacy in heaven with a resounding defense that silences all accusations. Silences all accusations. And I really want you to know, I know what Satan says about you. I know what a lot of us say about ourselves. But when I want you to know how God sees you. 
He sees you as a saint. Paul opens several of his letters saying to the saints, to the saints in Corinth, to the saints in Ephesus, to the saints in Philippi. The Greek word for that word saint is the Greek word hagias. It means to be holy or holy ones. And here's how God sees us. We are the hagias of God. We are the holy ones of God. That's how he sees us through his eyes. In Ephesians 5.8, Paul says, you were once darkness, but now you are light. That's a powerful statement. Not you show light. You are light. We were sinners, but now, through the death and resurrection of Jesus, by putting our faith in him, we are no longer called sinners. We are now called saints. That's how he sees us. Yes, we sin, but sin is no longer what defines us. And I want you to know, I am not anymore, I'm not a sinner who saints, but I'm actually a saint who sins. That's how God sees me. I think in the second week, we talked about the fact that now I'm in him, right? That's our position, in him. And we tend to define ourselves by our past and present experience. That's how we tend to define ourselves. But God defines us, not by that, but by our present and ultimately future reality, this thing of being his holy people, the saints of God, the Hagias of God. That's how he defines us. Satan wants us to rest in our identity, to rest in the past and the present, in what we have done and in what we are doing. That's where he wants us to root our identity. God wants us to root our identity in the present and the future reality of who we are, of who I am becoming, and who I will fully one day be in Jesus as a saint of God. That's where he wants us to root our identity. And for many of us this morning, in our mind, our history is defining of us. But I want you to know in Jesus, history is not defining and it is not destiny. It is not destiny. I am not my past. I am not my sin. I am not my failing. We are defined by who we are in Christ, not by what we do or don't do for Christ. A little bit ago when we read Zechariah 3 about Joshua, the high priest, whom Satan accused. It says something really interesting in that passage I didn't show you. After he's accused and he gets rebuked, that an angel of the Lord stands before him and takes his filthy clothes and says, you are forgiven of your sin and changes those out for new clean clothes. And that image is picked up in the New Testament and is used of us, especially in the book of Revelation. It occurs multiple times in Revelation about us being in God's eyes clothed in white clothes, not in the dirty rags of our sin. And in chapter 7, at one point, somebody says, who are all those people in the white robes? To which somebody responds and says, those are they who have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb, who've been made clean by Him. And I want you to know when the Father sees us, he sees us as his saints, as ones who are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. That's how he sees us. That is what reality is because we are the Hagios of God. That's who we are. And so because of all of that, Paul wrote the following in Romans 8, 31 to 37. What then shall we say in response to these things? Okay, the things we just talked about this morning. What do we say in response to that? If God is for us, who can be against us? Yeah, you should read those blue ones with me. There's a red one coming. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge? Who will bring any charge against them? those whom God has chosen. It is God who justifies. 
Who then is the one who condemns? Can you read that with me? Who then is the one who condemns? And can we say it loudly? The answer is what? No one. No one. Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword or failure, right? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered a sheep to be slaughtered. No, would you read this with me? No. And him, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. More than conquerors. This is the reality of who we are and of how we stand. And I know we all struggle with this, but I think we really grasp this reality. The result of listening to the accuser is we shrink back, right? We live as an orphan. If we live into this reality and really accept it, not just with our head and our heart, the result will be confidence in a heart that's at rest. Look at 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. Here's what he writes there. Such a profound passage, I think. This is how we know that we belong to the truth. And how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. You long to have your heart at rest in his presence? If our hearts condemn us, If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than my heart. And he knows everything. I mean everything. He knows everything, right? Everything about me, past, present, future. So if my heart condemns me, I know that God is greater than my heart because he knows everything. And dear friends, I love how he adds that. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, if we live into the truth of Scripture... We have, what do we have? We have confidence before God. We have confidence. Do you not long for that? To have a heart that's rest in his presence, to come to him with confidence. I mean, just this week as I thought about that, how do you do do that? And I think the key is, um, the key to that is the end of verse 19. He says, how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. You have to intentionally set your heart at rest. That means... I need to focus and meditate on the truth of God. That's how you, you're setting your heart on the truth of God. That's why we gave you these cards with some of these things on here. You know, I'm a beloved child of God, one in whom he delights. The whole, the, I am a temple of God. The, the God, the spirit actually lives inside of me. I'm a citizen of his unshakable kingdom. I will share eternally his glory with him. Some of these things are to be reminders to us of the reality. And so the, the purpose of this is to help us to set our minds and our hearts on the reality of who we are. Um, It is not easy to learn, right? Trust me, it is not easy to learn. And we go through ups and downs with it and we struggle and it takes a lot of time. I think it takes a lot of daily meeting with him, a lot of prayer, a lot of time being in the word. How many of you are in the Psalms right now? How powerful are the Psalms? How powerful are the Psalms in speaking, I think, into our hearts? So I encourage you to, to really work at setting your hearts at rest in him. In the fourth sermon, I talked about some practical ways to do that. I just want to say one other thing. Let us really be careful how we speak to each other. Okay? The way you talk to fellow believers in this family, in this body, when you speak, does it sound more like to them like the accuser? Does it sound more like to them like an advocate? So I just want to challenge all of us. Because I think sometimes when we struggle with this, it's because somebody comes to us as an accuser, and then we buy into that, and then Satan echoes it, right? So let us work hard at speaking to each other as advocates. So again, kind of my, the most important thing I want you to leave with is God does not want us living under a cloud of condemnation. 
That's not his desire. He wants us living under the umbrella of his love and grace. That's his desire. Satan is all about condemnation and judgment. He will continually, he continually throws things in my face, and he'll do that in your face. But Jesus is all about love and grace. Satan, the accuser, says to you, sinner, and Jesus, your advocate, says, no, saint. Satan says, lost. Jesus says, found. Satan says of you, unforgivable. Jesus says, forgiven. The accuser says, irredeemable. And Jesus says, no, redeemed. Satan says, naked. Jesus says, clothed in my righteousness. Satan says, loser. Jesus says, no, a victor. Satan says, unlovable and an orphan. And Jesus says, no, my beloved child, one in whom I delight. The accuser comes and says, condemn. And Jesus Christ stands tall and says, in me there is now no condemnation to those who are in me and have that relationship. Can I hear an amen to that? Judy gave me one earlier. Can I have one? Thank you. I want you to know that in the words of John, greater is he who is in you who is in the world. The advocate is greater than the accuser. And you are who God says you are, not who he, who he says you are, and not who you say who you are. I'm who God says you are. So I've been saying this almost every week. Don't listen to the loudest voices, especially that voice. Listen to the truest voice, the voice of God. I want you to know, I want you to know that the verdict is in on you. The verdict is in. Forgiven adopted, redeemed, accepted, and loved. And no one, nothing can touch you. No one or nothing can touch you. Jesus has made you his own. He will never cast you out. Jesus stands up on your behalf and he defies all accusers. He defies them all. I hope you kept your place in John chapter 8. I forgot to ask you to do that. John chapter 8, and the worship team, if they can come, want to come out, this is a good time. John chapter 8, I left off halfway through verse 6, where they brought her in a sense of condemnation. They were using this question to trap him, so they could accuse him, taking on the voice of Satan against him. But it says in the rest of verse 6, but Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and he said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and he wrote on the ground. We don't know what he wrote, but he was writing something. Some people thought maybe he was writing the sins of everybody that was there, but we don't know. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up, I think looked her in the eye, and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No, sir, she answered. And he said, neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. Neither do I condemn you. I, some of us this morning need to hear those words and to receive those words. Neither do I condemn you. 
And so I just want to ask, for what are you carrying a load of guilt? What's the thing you've done, haven't done, are doing, are not doing, that you carry as this load of guilt? For what are you bearing shame right now? What past sin or failure is weighing you down? Or what present, current sin pattern is just a burden and a barrier you're carrying and it brings shame and condemnation to you? What current relational problem is a source of, sh- of shame and condemnation? So here's what we want to do this morning. We want to close with some worship and we want to give you a chance to respond. If God has spoken to you and if you are carrying something, if you are carrying a load of weight or shame for something past, present, it could be multiple things. Here's what I want to ask you to do as we sing, to come forward. We've got crosses up here. We've got nails and a hammer. We've got small um, little yellow sticky notes. And if you would write a word, a couple of words that represents the thing that you are carrying shame for, and you condemn, you listen to the condemner and you condemn yourself. And I just want to challenge you, if this is something that would be helpful to come forward, to write that on there, to nail it on the cross as a way of, of agreeing with him, excuse me in that no condemnation. And then take a little sheet of paper with you. It says, in Jesus, no condemnation. It has 1 John 2, 1 and Romans 8, 1. That in him we have an advocate before the Father and that in him there is no condemnation. And take that as a reminder of the reality that Jesus has taken all of your sin, all of your shame, all of that. And you are not what you do. You're not what you fail to do. You are his child. And he does not look at you through the eyes of condemnation. So if this would be helpful to you, I invite you to come up to do that say a prayer to take one of these. So let's, um, would you stand with me? And I, I want to say, frequently when we do this, there's always somebody that really badly wants to come up, but like until somebody takes that first step, like a bunch of people sit, and once the dike breaks, kind of, then people come. I don't know what God is doing in here this morning, but if that's you, one of you could just be brave and take that step. That would give other people that freedom. But let's go to the Lord. my heart, Lord. Here's my heart, Lord. Here's my heart, Lord. Speak what is true. We have been redeemed by his blood and forgiven the riches of God's grace. We have been rescued from darkness and brought into his light, the light of his kingdom, of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. Is I am found, I am yours. my heart, 
crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Jesus is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. God demonstrated his love for us while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. Because I am found, I am yours, I am loved, I make pure, I have life, I can breathe, I am healed, I am free, because you judged and has crossed over from death to life.
Rejoice as though heaven had lost. But then Jesus arose with the freedom in him. That's when death was arrested and my life began. That's when.
on Charles Wesley, um, I've got up here, from the hymn, And Can It Be, says this, Now no condemnation, now, no condemnation, now I dread, Jesus all in him is mine, alive in him my living head, and clothed in righteousness divine. Can we say amen to that too? We kind of had an amen Sunday, so let me pray for us. Oh, and on your way out, if, if even between services, if you're like, I didn't want to do that in front of people, if you want to come up and do this, that's fine. If you just want to come up and grab one of these to put in your Bible as a reminder that in Jesus there is no condemnation, because even if you're not living there now, there are going to be times that you're going to do something or a past thing will come up and Satan is going to immediately start to jabber to you about that. So please feel free to come get one of these. And let me pray for us. Father, thank you that we are free, free, that we're forever free. And to that we do say amen. Thank you that Jesus in you, there is no condemnation. No condemnation. Set us free from the self-condemnation. Set us free from listening to the enemy. And Lord, let us draw closer to you, our intercessor and our advocate, and listen to the truth of who you say we are. We pray that you would help us live this week in a greater freedom of the reality of who we are in you and not under a sense of condemnation. And I pray this in the name of Jesus, our great advocate, our ever-living Savior, teacher, Lord, and friend. Amen. All right, come get one of these if you want. At 12th, you are sent to live as the Hagios of God. Live the reality of who you are as the saints of God this week.